This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, where we highlight the lives of those making a positive impact on the world today. Today's guest, Wayne Lavender, the Executive Director of the Foundation for Orphans. Before I get to Wayne, though, I wanted to thank all of you who listened to and shared the story of Allison Gott and her organization, Brave Hoods. If you recall, for every hoodie purchased through Brave Hoods, the organization donates one to a child or to the family member of a child who is battling cancer. The Brave Hood story was shared many times on social media, and I understand it even led to a potential opportunity with a global apparel retailer. So fingers crossed for that. I also want to let you know that this episode of Uncorking a Story is brought to you by my new novel, Winning Streak, a story about a young man's journey to move forward with his life after the sudden death of his father. Pick up Winning Streak at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or wherever you buy books online. It's available in either ebook or paperback format, and as I must say, it makes a very good holiday gift. So on to my interview with Wayne. Um, this is a story with many themes, including faith, hope, and charity. But at the heart of this narrative is a very powerful story of a man following his calling to leave the world a more peaceful and more just place. When I read Death of a Salesman as a freshman in high school, I never linked the story of Willie Loman or Biff to my own desire to make my own mark on the world. Wayne Lavender, on the other hand, did. When I go running, I've yet to be struck by a voice inside my head telling me to go to Mozambique and help the poor. Well, that's exactly what happened to Wayne Lavender, and he tells that story here. Wayne's story and the story of Foundation for Orphans is a powerful, emotional, and compelling one. And I hope you enjoy it. So welcome to Uncorking a Story, Wayne Lavender, Executive Director of Foundations for Orphans. How are you, Wayne? Good, Mike. It's good to be with you and every, everybody who's listening out there. I'm glad you, uh, you tuned in. Well, good, uh, good to have you with us. Um, Wayne, tell me a little bit about um, the Foundation for, for Orphans. Uh, what is it? Uh, when did you? Um, when did you know? Wh- when did it start? Just give me a little bit about a, a history and overview of of the foundation. Yeah, the Foundation for Orphans is a IRS approved five hundred one c three nonprofit. I established it in the year uh, two thousand eleven. Our main mission is to serve the educational, emotional, physical, and spiritual needs of orphans and vulnerable children. 
Right now we work with orphans and vulnerable children in Mozambique and in Iraq, and we're about to expand our reach into the Democratic Republic of the, of the Congo, the DRC. So two nations we work in now and about to expand into a third nation. And how did you um, – what came first, Mozambique, Iraq, or both at the same time, or how did you yeah, – Mozambique came first. I first visited Mozambique in 1998 and was struck by the plight of orphans and vulnerable children there. I, I literally, literally with my own eyes, saw children dying and die in the streets of Mozambique. And it struck me very powerfully. Uh, so we began working there. We built an orphanage in Mozambique in 2005, and that's when we really started helping children. Uh, after, uh, I'll talk about this a little bit, but after I, I received my Ph.D., I taught in Iraq from 2011 until 2013. I taught, I taught peace and conflict resolution at a university in the Kurdish region of Iraq. And while there, I opened a chapter of the Foundation for Orphans to work with the orphans in, uh, in that region as well. So Mozambique first, and then Iraq. What, what first um, prompted you to, to visit Mozambique? Well, I, I am a United Methodist pastor, and was serving, I, I've served uh, three churches. I was happily serving a church in New Milford, Connecticut at the time, and my conference, uh, conferences made up of about 409 Methodist churches, uh, began sending teams to Mozambique in 1996. And I never had really any interest, but one day I saw the announcement in our conference newsletter, and I dismissed it. And the next day as I was out jogging, I just had this, literally like this sense in my head, a voice almost, saying, you need to go to Mozambique. And, uh, and so I listened to that, and I went and it really changed my life. And so I've been back uh, multiple times since then. So I'm not sure that I chose Mozambique. Mozambique kind of chose me. Interesting. So yeah. you you had a moment. It's almost um, uh, some. How would you characterize that as almost an, an intervention in your life when when you're out jogging? Or how do you? What was that experience like? Yeah. I, I discovered. You know, I've, I've run my whole life. I've, I've been a long distance runner for about 35 years. Uh, run six or eight marathons, and I discovered years ago that my spiritual time is my running time. It's time when I get away from people and uh, and just get out and, and I'm on the road by myself. And I feel like I've had several moments like that while I was running. So yeah, a God moment, uh, a spiritual moment, and uh, I tend to listen to those. Those don't happen all the time. They're, they're quite rare, but uh, it really changed my life. And at the time, uh, in 1996, Mozambique was considered the poorest nation on the planet. So when I went in 98, it was just two years from that uh, awful designation. And, you know, we can read about extreme poverty. We can see it on the news. But until you see it with your own eyes, you have no idea what people on our planet really live with. And so uh, it just, like I said, captured my heart. And uh, the people there are sweet and kind and generous. And uh, I, I have just kind of focused a major part of my life since then on trying to help the most vulnerable on our planet uh, with ways to survive and, uh, and to move forward in their, in their circumstances. Now, you, um, you mentioned you, uh, you are a Methodist pastor. Um, 
when when did you know? And and I, and I will come back to the foundation in a minute, but I'm I'm always interested in in the backstory. So, when did you know? When did you feel a calling towards um, towards that type of life? Towards the ministry? Yeah. I I, uh, I felt called to ministry when I was in eighth grade. So I grew up in uh, Ridgefield, Connecticut, and was in a confirmation class. And I read the Gospels uh, on my own during the confirmation class and felt called to pursue uh, the ministry, to be in mission. At the same time, in school, I was reading you know, some literature. I know eighth-grade literature is kind of um, basic, but I was reading about the American dream and uh, read the death of a salesman and things like that. And, and want to have an impact on my life where I could make a difference in the world. And at the same time, reading the Gospels through Confirmation felt a call to ministry. So I pursued that, you know, through high school, college, straight into seminary. I, you know, I was one of the few people who, who did all those things without a break. And I was ordained in 1984 as a young uh, 20-something-year-old uh, and uh, began my ministry. And my ministry, you know, it was successful but kind of evolved from just serving members in my congregation, which was noble and and worthwhile, but to having a bigger call as well to recognize that, you know, there's there's a a great need for peace with justice, that war continues to create uh, just horrific situations, orphans and widows and waste of resources. So I've been working with orphans as a means to create a world of peace and justice. No one can disagree with working with orphans. You know, we could disagree on the existence of global climate change or disagree on whether the Iranian nuclear deal was a good deal or not. There's many things we can disagree with, but no one can disagree that caring for orphans is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thirty different times the Bible says we should care for orphans. That's more than almost any other subject the Bible covers. And John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, said caring for orphans was the highest form of charity on earth. So what I'm trying to do in this is bring together the, the right and the left, you know, people who are against same-sex ceremonies and uh, uh, equality for the LGBT community and those people who are for it. They can all agree that caring for orphans is a critical thing. And so it becomes a peace-building organization in that, like, when I was in Iraq uh, working with orphans, the Iraqi students, who were all, of course, uh, Muslim, wanted to be involved and care for orphans in their own country, too. So in a way, I think the Foundation for Orphans is like uh, the opposite of a group like ISIS. It brings people together around a common cause to care for these children and and help them get a better life. I want to, uh, I do want to talk about your experiences um, in, in Mozambique, in Iraq, and in, into the, in these very poor um, areas of the world, war-torn areas of the world. But, uh, but before I do, you, you um, I, I don't know how old you are, um, Wayne, but it's fair to say that you chose a path, um, you know, you, you chose, uh, you know, a, a path towards ministry during a time period uh, which would be considered very countercultural. Your path was very counter to the culture of what was going on in the U.S. during that time. Is that is that a fair statement? Well, I'm I'm still in my fifties, but I won't be in my fifties much longer. <laughs> uh, I uh, so I 
I was in my confirmation class in middle school and high school in the early 70s, mid-70s. And I think there was obviously the anti-war movement and there was a civil rights movement. I kind of lived towards the end of those things. But there was a huge spiritual component to those times as well. Uh, obviously, the civil rights movement headed by uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King you know, was church-inspired, as was the anti-war movement. So I, I don't think the whole country was moving away from spirituality at the time or from the institutional church. Certainly institutional churches, churches have suffered during my career as a pastor, but I don't think spirituality is necessarily uh, on a decline. Instead, people are just frustrated with the institutional church because the institutional church is infighting over issues like you know, same-sex ceremonies and whether the Bible is to be read spiritually or, or literally. But there's a deep yearning in our country for spirituality. And there's also a deep yearning, I think, to make a difference. People, people don't want to join a church and, you know, argue over the color of the carpet and, uh, you know, who's going to light the candles for Christmas. They want to get involved and make a difference. And so in the churches I served, we always, you know, did mission work first and foremost, from local ministry to global ministries. And we use the word global. You know, global to say both glo global is important as well as local is important. So in other words, um, you know, there, there is, and I, and it's hard, you know, if, if you pay attention to, to things being written in the press about organized religion, you know, you, you'd walk away with, with a sense that, um, you know, organized religion is on the decline, church attendance is down, um, and that, that we're becoming a nation of non-believers, but that may not necessarily be the case. We may be frustrated with what's going on in organized religion, but that yearning for spirituality um, is is actually still there. That hasn't gone anywhere. Is that is that kind of what you're saying? Yes, I, I would I would defend that. There, you know, the most recent polling is showing that the people who are checking off the boxes of atheist or agnostic are growing. That's the most uh, quickest growing segment of our society. But that's still only like 22 or 24 percent of our population. So, a good solid 75 percent of our of our citizens in the U.S. are still persons who believe in God, and majority of them, of course, is still Christian. So, while the mainline churches are declining, and while the agnostic and atheists are growing, there's still a small minority in our country, and people want spirituality. They want the churches to to stand for something rather than, you know, all this internecine arguing and, uh, and fighting. And, and in, in your mind, this is kind of where missions come in. So, you know, you're, you're always going to have a group of people who might be arguing over, um, you know, certain matters. But the great equalizer here is um, working with, you know, those who are poor, those who are a lot less fortunate, those who are vulnerable. And that's that's something that we can all agree is uh, worthy of our time, maybe even more worthy of our time and attention, you know, versus, um, you know, matters of uh, human sexuality or, uh, you know, who gets to, I think in your words, you know, who, who lights what candle? Yeah, exactly, Mike. I think you've got it. And it's not that human sexuality is not an important topic. And... Uh, I think it's something we discuss. 
Um, but human sexuality issues pale in comparison with the fact that 20,000 children die every day around the world from preventable diseases, and that there are 150 million orphans around the world. So what I found is when I took groups to Mozambique, I, I brought with me rich and poor, uh, young and old, Democrat or Republican, black and white. I mean, I went with the biggest groups of differences you can imagine. And we argued and debated over every topic of the day. I remember being in Mozambique while Bill Clinton was having his impeachment trial. And we would work all day with orphans and, uh, you know, 8, 10, 12-hour shifts. And at night, we could talk about our differences on political or theological issues and laugh about them and recognize our differences. But we, more to, you know, more to the point, we came together around those children's needs. And at the church I served in New Milford, where I first started getting involved with children, with orphans and vulnerable children, again, we we disagreed over issues like sexual identity or who should be president or global climate change. But every person in that church agreed that those children needed to have food and they needed to have shelter and they needed to go to school. We could unite around that. So that's kind of how I, I, I want to say I stumbled into this. I mean, I, this wasn't a brilliant uh thing that came to me, no, I, I recognized by st stepping back and saying, man, we, we disagree over half the issues. You know, the Methodist church is as divided as the United States is right now. We are, we are divided people in our church and in our nation right now. But despite the differences, we can agree and unite around the needs of these children. And that's where, uh, that's where the call for the foundation came from. So tell me, when, when you first went to Mozambique. So after, you know, you felt you felt called um called to go there. When you first stepped off the airplane and and you first kind of immersed yourself into that region. What was it like? Well, it's hard to describe uh, and articulate. But there were Maputo is the capital of Mozambique. And as I said it I was there two years after it had been designated the poorest nation in the country or in the world. And it had that designation because of uh, uh, almost 30 years of war, a 10-year revolutionary war to throw off the Portuguese, uh, you know, colony. And then they went into a long civil war to see whether they'd be, uh, you know, kind of a Western democracy or a more uh, communistic type of nation. So the city of Maputo, where we landed, has a population of somewhere around a million people, and there were 50,000 homeless children on the streets of Maputo. And the emotion that just just overwhelmed me, I just, uh, you know, cried with my group and tried to, tried to assess where I was. I had just flown out of New York, and I'd come from a very comfortable gathering of United Methodist clergy who meet every year. We met at Hofstra University, and, you know, when you go to a college campus, there was 12 different kinds of sodas we could have at our meals, and uh, three meals a day, and comfortable rooms to sleep in, and then here I am with 50,000 street children in Maputo alone. So it was, it was shocking, and depressing, and uh, life-changing, and uh, I think those are the easiest words I can use to describe anyone's experience who, who goes into, into situations like that. 
So you uh, and, and how long did you spend in Mozambique that first time? That trip, I was there for uh, almost three weeks. Uh, we spent about uh, four or five days in Maputo, the capital. Then we drove inland to a United Methodist missionary outpost and spent, uh, I think, about 10 days there. And then we uh, dribbled our way back towards Maputo, stopping at several places along the way. I can't remember, three or four more days back in Maputo. I think the total time we were in Mozambique was 17 or 18 days. And then you you come back to the United States, and, and what happens next? Well, I began uh, speaking about my experience and sharing with the congregation. Uh, the next year, four members of that church went and had similar experiences. And then in 2002, I led a team of six from that church. And we went to this orphanage, this one orphanage in particular, which literally was at the end of the world. It was uh, established in the 1990s, early 1990s, by United Methodist missionaries. They had no resources. They put it in an abandoned lepers' colony because the church remembered that these buildings were off in the distance. They were far removed from any community because, you know, it had been lepers in the 1950s and 60s, and they wanted them away from towns and villages because they didn't want them to spread their disease. So there was about 25 children who were basically living at this orphanage. It was on a little hill. Down the hill was a swamp. The swamp had mosquitoes. The mosquitoes had malaria. Uh, when we were there, we were told that, it, that they averaged a child's death every month because they just didn't have the medical facilities or the resources. Um, there were four or five babies there. If a baby got milk one day, they couldn't get milk the next day because there just weren't enough. There was one bottle that, that all the babies shared. There was no electricity. There was no running water. And so our group, uh, you know, thought about this long and hard. And we spoke to the director after we'd been there three or four times and said, you know, why are you in this location? This is a, a horrific place. And the director broke down and, and began crying. She said, we've been praying for... 10 years that we, we moved. She said, we don't like this location, but we, we can't fund a different location. So we said, well, what if we go back to the United States and raise money for a new orphanage? Would, would you be interested? And she said, of course. She said, that would be the answer to our prayers. So we spoke to the local clergy and to the district superintendent and the bishop, and that's exactly what we did. When we went back to the United States, my church raised $85,000 over the course of two years, and we were able to wire that money and local Mozambicans were able to work and build a new orphanage about, uh, it was about 30 miles away at a United Methodist compound where there was a school and where there was a health care clinic and where there was a church and where the kids could get involved in activities with other children. So, again, I, I sort of stumbled onto that, uh, figuring out our metrics now that we won't build orphanages unless all those things are present. Uh, a school, a school's nearby, healthcare clinic, a spiritual center, a church, or something like that, and access for children to to get in with other children and, and to sort of be part of a community rather than the isolation that they, that they had been living in that we discovered on that trip in 2002. Yeah. And then when when does Iraq come into play? When 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 is your first trip to Iraq? 
Yeah, well, let me just back up a sure. second, Mike. I, um, I left the church in New Milford. I was there for 12 years, and I thought I might, you know, retire out of the church. I love that church, and that church was a exciting place to be. But in 2005, I, again, while running, I felt a call to do a different kind of ministry. So I left that church and wrote my first book and uh, felt like I needed more education. So I ended up in Virginia and got a Ph.D. in public policy. And I graduated in 2010, and I got the job teaching in Iraq in 2011. So I taught peace and conflict resolution in the Kurdish region of Iraq for a year and a half. And uh, while I was there, of course, Iraq Iraq is not poor the way the sub-Saharan African nations are poor. It has orphans because of the conflict and wars. And many of my students, or some of my students, were orphans. And again, there were orphans all around, not homeless, not living on the streets. But every town, every village had orphans because their dads primarily had been killed in, in war or, or uh, inter-conflicts you know, going on there. It's a very complicated, of course, all the different factions, all the different groups. Uh, and so I met with some students, and we, we established a chapter, the Foundation for Orphans in Iraq. And in Iraq, we do different type of work. In Iraq, I trained 100 university students to be mentors for orphans. And so uh, I did some basic sensitivity training and some listening skills. And then we assigned each mentor, each college student, to a, an orphan. And we had them sign a pledge that they would meet with that orphan at least once a month until that child turned 18. And so this was kind of like a big brother, big sister program, you know, as opposed to what we do in, in Mozambique. Because the orphans there, you know, when their dad was killed or whatever happened, they felt somehow emotionally disconnected and they felt, you know, great sadness. And so our students were to provide a mentor role for these kids until they turned 18. So that began in 2012, and it continues uh, to right now. Now, in your in your time in Iraq, or and even in Mozambique, um, I know you're you've been powerfully moved by what you experienced there. But had you ever did you ever have any occasions to experience fear in those in those parts of the world? Well, sure. Uh, I'm uh, I'm blessed with a great uh, great fearlessness per se. Uh, I had the occasion in Mozambique where I was traveling at night with uh, another United friend, and and I just you know I'm sure I was the only white face for you know I felt like hundreds of miles uh, traveling on boats that didn't seem safe at night, no railings, no guards, anything like that, walking villages, so there would be a, a minimal sense of fear. Uh, in Iraq, the Kurdish people were the ones who most welcomed the Americans. Uh, Saddam Hussein had persecuted the, the uh, Kurdish people. We all know about the gas and the Kurds in Halabja. And, and so the Kurds were the ones who most wanted Americans there. In some respects, I never felt safer than I was in Iraq, in the Kurdish uh, community. There was a million people who lived there, and they knew I was the American professor. You know, they, they used the word mamasat for uh, professor. So I was the American uh, mamasat. I got free taxi rides, free meals. Uh, you know, as soon as people saw me, they'd say, we love America. We love 
We love George Bush. We love Barack Obama. It was very interesting. No Americans, as you know, love George Bush and Barack Obama. <laughs> Not the same they people. <laughs> they love Bush because he kind of overthrew Saddam. He did overthrow Saddam. And they loved Obama because they thought of him they thought of him as like a cosmopolitan figure who could help their region. Uh, I, I went to Baghdad twice. I didn't feel nearly as safe in Baghdad. Now, I went as a, as a guest of the president. It's a whole other um, story. And I was in the armed vehicles with, you know, all kinds of people surrounding us with with weapons and stayed in the green zone. And, I, in fact, I, I spent the night in one of Saddam's former palaces. But even with all that security and all of the guards, I didn't feel as safe as I did in the, in the Kurdish region where they take hospitality to a whole other level. You know, they... They really protected me. The students and the professors and faculty took me under their wing and made sure I was safe and comfortable, like I said, with all the meals and all that. Now, something could have happened, obviously. Uh, ISIS uh, basically expanded after I was there, and ISIS was not far from where, where I was. ISIS now is about 100 miles from where I was, so I don't know if I could go back in the same circumstances, but I was there in a good time from 2011 to 2013 and like I said, felt pretty safe most of the time. Um, so you you have um, programs going on in Mozambique. You have programs going on in Iraq. And you mentioned uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Is, is, that, is that where you're expanding to next, or are you already there? Yeah, we're expanding there next. We, we write now this very day we're finishing an orphanage in Mozambique. We have funds for another orphanage to build in Mozambique, and that site has been selected, and probably work will begin there in, in February. Uh, but I have a good friend who I met in 2002 who's a United Methodist pastor, and he lives in the, in the DRC, in the Congo. And I ran into him in May at General Conference in Portland, and he has seen on Facebook, and he's known that I work with orphans. He is a pastor, but he works at a school setting on the United Methodist compound. They've got about 10 acres where, again, they've got a church, and they've got a school, and they've got a health care clinic. They have a plot of land where they have been hoping to put an orphanage for uh, five or six years. They have plans developed. They, again, they just don't have the resources to build the orphanage. And he said, you know, maybe you're the answer to our prayers. We would love for you to come and build this orphanage here. And after we did some research, we decided to partner with them. So we're right now in the midst of raising money for this new orphanage. The goal is uh, $200,000. That will be for 80 children. This is in Lumbashi, DRC. And they have thousands of orphans on the streets. So we'd like to start by, you know, impacting 80 and construction will begin, will begin there as soon as we get about half of that target goal of 200000 uh, So, you know, we're in the process of raising money. It's a, it's a shovel-ready program is how it's been described to us, and I think that's the case. So that will be a, the third nation that we move into when we have enough money to really uh, make sure that the project can be completed in a timely manner. Well, I mean, in, in along those lines and in that spirit – if there are people out there listening to this right now who want to help, who want to help you raise that money um, and, and go beyond shovel-ready to, you know, pouring a foundation, 
what, where can they go to, um, to make a donation or to do anything else to, to help the Foundation for Orphans out? Yeah, uh, thank you for asking that. Uh, we do have a website. Of course, every nonprofit has a website. We're easy to find. We're on the web at f4o.org. If you Google the Foundation for Orphans, it will take you to our website. You can give online. Uh, people give to us via checks. Our mailing addresses there on online. Uh, we've got one of those square readers so people can give through a credit card. Um, there's multiple ways to give, so you can find us online or uh, you know, call me. My phone number is online. I'm happy to anybody to reach out. I, I can give it now, I guess. Please do. Uh, my my cell phone, and uh, I encourage people to call my cell phone, is 203-417-7362. Um, one, you know, one of the things you mentioned is you felt that at one point you had a, um, uh, I don't want to say a different calling, but you were inspired to, to write a book, and um, you, know, you, you went back and got a PhD in public policy, but... Uh, can you share a little bit more about, about that book? I mean, I'm sure there are some people out there who may want to pick that up. So if you wouldn't mind sharing the, the title for me and where people can buy, that'd be great. Yeah, I joke often, uh, in the last 10 years, I've now written five books. <laughs> and I've written five books when people don't read as much anymore, right? They, they do podcasts and uh, online stuff. Uh, but the first book I wrote is titled Counting Ants While the Elephants March By. And I think titles are important, you know, to see, to count ants, you have to look really small. Ants are tiny, and so you have to bend over and, you know, count one, two, three. So the book was titled Counting Ants While the Elephants March By. Elephants are huge. And in my basic thesis was the institutional church is, you know, focusing on small, insignificant issues while extreme poverty is claiming these 20,000 lives a day. And while there's a out, you know, just a, an outpouring of weapons from, you know, great weapons of nuclear and biological and, and chemical uh, to, uh, to global climate change, there's some really big issues out there. And the church is focusing on these trivial infighting issues. So that was my first book. And it's, it's also available online. The, my most recent book is, is titled Who Will Care for the Orphan? And it's a book that I focused at. Uh, it, it's kind of a niche book for United Methodists because the subtitle is If You Are United Methodist, It Could Be You. And so I, I was hoping it, and I have been able to, to some extent, capture United Methodist church leaders and say, let's, again, let's, let's unite around something we can all unite around. The in-between books, I have a children's book, and I did write a book while I was in Iraq. Uh, and I'm right now working on a book that will be for all Christians focused on orphans, because it's not just United Methodists who should focus on orphans and come together, but it's really all Christians, because 30 times our Bible says care for orphans. And in even a broader sense, I'm hoping after this book is finished to write another book, which would be on the Abrahamic faiths on Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and how we can unite to care for orphans and get over all this uh, animosity and bad feelings that have divided and separated us for, you know, at least since 9-11, if not before. Well, yeah, I mean, especially in a, um, in a political environment like we have now, 
Uh, and I mean, this is not just a result of this most recent presidential election, but even well before. It seems like we're divided more than ever as a nation. Um, and certainly the work you're doing is very inspiring because it's it's really without regard to what what somebody's background is. The people you are helping are not clearly not people necessarily who have um, who have been raised in a Christian church, let alone a Methodist background. And that doesn't seem to matter. You're helping people regardless of, of who they are, yet we as a, a country, I feel, um, like to call each other names and we like to divide versus bring together. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's human nature. Uh, I suspect it is to some extent. Uh, but, you know, I saw something the other day online that the num- number of Americans this is a 10-year average, 10-year average. The number of Americans who've been killed by Islamic jihadists averaged two a year. So that means in 20 years, only for in the last 10 years, only 20 have been killed by far right-wing terrorists, five a year. By all Islamic jihadists, including U.S. citizens, it's 90 a year. That's a 10-year average. That's 90 who have been killed. But armed toddlers in the United States kill 21 Americans a year. Lightning kills 31 31 million Americans a year, and lawnmowers 69 Americans a year. Being hit by a bus, 264. 11,000 Americans are killed each year by being shot by another American. So when we look at these statistics, we realize that terrorism is a threat, but it's almost insignificant. And we have so much more in common with brothers and sisters. You know, when I was in Iraq, I, I felt protected by these Islamic students and faculty. And they share with me that the word Islam means peace. So when we, when we talk about the Islamic, you know, terrorists, they're not Islamic. They're terrorists. You know, we can't really connect the two together. They're not acting in a spirit of, of religion or, or Muhammad. And so if we can get over this fear, if we can reach out and make the connections, the United States stands at this pinnacle of world power where we are the dominant nation economically and culturally and military around the world. We could usher in an era of peace and justice with the resources that we have. If we could get over the fear and unite, we could literally create a golden era of peace and justice on the planet. And that's my ultimate, you know, goal. I mean, that's it sounds almost foolish, but I feel if each of us did our part, we could help bring this about. And by being the nation that shows a better face, we would mitigate the anger against the United States. We, You know, if we're the nation that feeds people, clothes people, cares for people, shelters them, then the anger against us would would dissolve, and we would have net less need of military, less need of invading, less need of killing people, and just create a virtuous cycle rather than the vicious cycle that we're in right now. Kind of all, all by giving more than just the crumbs from our table. There you go. 
Well, I want to thank you uh, for your time today, Wayne. I want to remind everybody who's listening that they can help support the Foundation for Orphans by going to www.f4, that's the number four, f4o.org slash give. And uh, Wayne, I want to wish you the, the best of luck with, with your mission. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Mike. It was my pleasure. I look forward to uh, being with you again. Thank you. Well, I hope you agree with me that the world certainly needs more people like Wayne Lavender in it. I enjoyed talking to Wayne. I'm certainly very inspired by his story. And I think it's one that is not only transforming the communities where Foundations for Orphans is in. I think a story as uh, powerful as Wayne's can uh, change all of us. I think uh, I always believe that change comes from within and a story like that, which touches the heart, uh, could inspire the rest of us to do something great. Uh, The holidays are upon us, and I want you all to remember, those of you who made it this far in the podcast anyway, to remember that it's not always a happy time for everybody. So if you've got any friends, family members, relatives out there who seem a little down in the dumps this time of year, don't avoid them. Go out of your way. Call them. Give them a hug send them a note. You might just be the light that they need this time of year to feel a little bit better. You might be someone who celebrates holidays this time of year, or you might not be. But regardless, I'll leave you with the words of Mahatma Gandhi. Be the change you want to see in the world. Thanks for listening.